I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. I'm here today with Andrew Yang, who recently ran for President of the United States and currently runs Move Humanity Forward, which advocates for universal basic income, human-centered capitalism, and data as a property right. He's been a critical supporter of President-elect Joe Biden and has just announced that he will be moving to Georgia to help the Democrats who are still in a runoff for two Senate seats in January. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Jill. And thank you for your incredible work uh, in the community. I love the trial in Chelsea. I, I love uh, folks who are working on education innovation. So the, it's great to connect. Uh, it's, it's so great to have you here. It's really nice to meet you. We probably should start with the obvious. Tell, tell us a little bit about your opinion about what happened over the last week with the election and what's going on right now. Thrilled, Joe's our president-elect, thank Yay. goodness. The, the national nightmare of Trumpism is, well, Trumpism, unfortunately, um, is not dead, but yeah. Trump will be our president. <laughs> so, so that's a phenomenal place to start. Right. Uh, the work we're doing, uh, I think, is more important than ever, Jill, in that we have to face facts that over 70 million Americans decided to re-up with Trump. Um, and that include maybe 5 million voters who didn't vote for him last time in 2016. So you have to ask yourself, oh my gosh, 5 million Americans saw what happened over the last four years and said, uh, you know, I didn't vote last time, but now's my chance. Now I'm going to so, double down, yeah. Uh, so so th there's like a, a real uh, rot going on in, in many, many communities. Uh, and folks are just falling into despair um, in, in an environment of despair, Trumpism is much more potent and powerful because if you lose hope and then someone uh, gives you an expression of anger uh, and breaking the system, uh, then you're much more likely to take it. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm thrilled that, that, that Joe Biden is going to be our president um, very soon. Uh, but I, I'm deeply concerned about what this election says in terms of where our, our country is because there are some negative trends that are getting stronger. Uh, and I, I feel like Joe and Kamala and the new administration have a lot of work to do if they're going to truly stem uh, the rising tides of dysfunction and despair. Andrew, do you think it was mostly people re-upping for Trump or do you think it was more Republicans that just couldn't bring themselves to vote Democratic, even given who our leader currently is? I talked to hundreds of maybe thousands of Trump supporters on the trail. This was pre-COVID and when I was still running and they had real concerns about President Trump. I mean, it's possible they still decided right. to, to vote for him um, after all the said and done. Uh, party allegiance is very powerful. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people will hem and haw and then end up voting along party lines when, <laughs> when they get in there. Right. right. Um, uh, but there, there were some people that said it's uh, that they're going to just not vote this time, like that voted for Trump last time. They couldn't right. bring themselves to vote for Trump. So I think when you dig through the numbers, you'll find that a lot of the, I mean, he got five million more voters this time than 2016. Yeah. And I think a lot of them were new. A lot of them were like this. Is, I, I affirmatively choose this. Yeah. So you're headed down to Georgia now. What do you expect to happen down there over the next couple of months? 
I think more and more energy is going to head into these Senate races, Bill, because the reality is if both of them go blue, then uh, Mitch McConnell can no longer obstruct everything in the Senate. And right. we can imagine having a unified government and be able to get things done. So what is the value difference there? In my mind, the value difference there is immense uh, in terms of human well-being. If you would put it into right. numbers, it's probably uh, maybe some... Uh, trillions of dollars even in terms of the the gap between one government um, where you can actually get things done and another when you cannot. Uh, so so hundreds of millions of dollars are going to get poured into Georgia very quickly. Um, the the voter registration deadline is December 7th to register new voters. Uh, and then the election's January 5th. So it's a very compressed time frame. Right. Two Senate races on the same day. If you can believe that. Uh, and that's why I'm heading there because we have to try and deliver uh, a Senate that Joe can work with and not have Mitch just saying no, no, no to everything. And what a nightmare, you know, we go through all this to get rid of Trump and then you still can't get anything done because of Mitch McConnell. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so if you, want, if you want to avoid that scenario, uh, please do donate to John Ossoff or, um, or Reverend Warnock's campaigns. Um, so I'm heading down there to volunteer and help out. Great. So then what, what happens after January 5th for you? Uh, then I, I either join the administration if they, um, you know, they, they think I can contribute something uh, positive or we just keep agitating for uh, cash relief, which we're doing right now through yeah. Humanity Forward. Um, uh, or there, there are some other structural problems that I, I think um, I want to try and tackle. So I always have things to do. Um, but um, if administration wants me in a in a substantive role I would definitely take it and what so you're you're, you're a huge proponent of um, UBI and um, as are we uh, you know we're running the we're helping to run one of the largest guaranteed income programs I know, in the country. that's why I'm here and I love you because I love everyone <laughs> who's pro universal basic income and yeah. actually something about it so thank yeah. you so much no, it's, it's, you know, we're so excited about it. We, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but this is, I feel like now we have to, like, it's, we've no, kind we of have. like gone over the cliff and right. And, and the time is now. And so can you talk a little bit about whether you're in Washington or not? And I hope you are. Will UBI, do you think be on the table regardless of, you know, whether people lean conservative or lean um, liberal, or do you feel like this is still, there's a long road before, we get to a place where people are more accepting of this sort of solution. Uh, Jill, it's so fascinating. Uh, before I decided to run for president, I thought the big problem is that people have not heard of universal basic income because like, right. most people hadn't heard of it. So I said, okay, let me remedy that. Yeah. Um, so so th thanks to many uh, incredible Americans who just threw their support behind me and, and the campaign. Um, I think now most people have heard of universal basic income. Uh, and its approval rating just keeps going up and up and up, particularly with right. the pandemic, unfortunately, as circumstances have worsened. Now, 55% of Americans are actually for universal basic income, and 82% are for cash relief during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there's now fairly widespread support for it. And in the Democratic Party, dozens of mayors have come out for this new Mayors for a Guaranteed Income uh, where you have the mayors of Los Angeles, Atlanta, St. Paul, Stockton, Compton, like, around the country, Newark, um, saying that we think we have to have basic income and we're going to run a trial. Um, so you, you can see this massive movement among Democratic mayors, uh, many of them 
many of whom are black. Um, so there's going to be this wellspring of support politically. Um, on the Republican side, uh, there have also been some people that have expressed some sympathy for cash payments during the pandemic. Uh, they haven't. And actually, some of them have even been open to universal basic income. So mm -hmm. I, I think the political force and momentum behind it is growing. One of my great concerns, Jill, is that you have a number of things in American life now where a lot of people are for them, um, but the government doesn't do anything. Right. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm now getting increasingly concerned that our government is not actually responsive to popular will for a variety of reasons. Uh, and that's one thing I wanna try and fix uh, because you, you can identify other things where it's like, well, most of us agree on common sense gun safety regulations or like uh, the need to improve our infrastructure or uh, some form of climate change uh, mitigation. Um, mm. and, and we're not doing any of those things. Uh, and, and so that, that's another set of problems to tackle that I'm actually now seeing more clearly do you, so, and do you think it's just because bureaucracies take a long time to change? Do you think it's because UBI is a, actually all of the things that you're really strongly advocating for are major shifts in our thinking, you know, like the individual owning their digital property, I think conceptually is a very difficult thing for us to think about, even though Americans tend to like the notion of privacy, that we don't really understand what a competitive asset it is to have our own you know, to, to, to um, have access to and allow access to digital information. And so d these are big thoughts that you have. And, and do you think that it just takes time for bureaucracy to catch up? Or do you think that things like COVID-19 and the dramatic impact it's had on Americans just opens up a door that maybe would have taken a lot longer to open? Well, we certainly have an opening that I wanna try and maximize. Uh, yeah. You know, dozens of members of Congress sponsored an Emergency Money for the People Act. Um, and millions of Americans got those stimulus checks of $1,200 and liked it. Right. <laughs> so so, so we, we, we definitely have an opening. Yeah. Um, but, but there's also the fact that, again, the, there are a lot of political incentives now, Jill, around um, blaming the other side and solving the problem. Uh, yeah. And the clearest example of that right now is the lack of a second... Uh, coronavirus relief bill, where right. it's common sense to all of us that if the benefits ended in July and it's November, uh, and you still have millions of people who are displaced, that we should do something. Um, and, and at this point, the Dems and Republicans have just shrugged and, and said, well, you know, it's their fault, um, yeah. rather than accept a bill that maybe isn't quite to their liking. Um, so th that's the stuff that concerns me when you talk about like, you know, there's the big thought, um, but even if people have the thought where let's say 82% of Americans think we should probably do something to help people during the pandemic. Uh, and then you look up and you see the gridlock in Washington. Um, yeah. so, so there are a couple of barriers for us to surmount. Do you, so just to kind of help people who are listening to this or watching this understand, we're talking about before COVID, 75% of Americans had less than $1,000 in savings and you know, 35% had no savings at all. And so, and you talked a lot about, you know, and, and we hear this a lot, that there are many, many Americans who are one you know, disaster away from just being completely in debt. COVID has exacerbated that. It's part of what, you know, we've seen deeply happening in Chelsea, Mass., which is, you know, a great example and maybe one of the deepest examples of how hard hit uh, a community can be by 
something like COVID-19, how, now that the elections presumably passed us, how, um, how do you think, do you think things will loosen up and, and those conversations will become easier? And um, how dramatic do you think uh, things will look on the recovery side? And, and how do you think both sides will, will think about this, knowing that we're all Americans and we're all facing kind of this massive challenge? Also that there's so many Americans who want to lean in and help and are, are not receiving great direction on how to do that. This is one reason I'm moving to Georgia, because in, in vision number one, uh, you have a unified government and, and then we're all trying to dig our way out, which is to me what we should be doing. Uh, right. you know, like anyone who doesn't think we have, we should have a robust legislative agenda right now is not paying attention. We have like a multi-trillion dollar hole in the economy. We have millions of displaced and unemployed. We have deprivation skyrocketing all over the place. And right now, cities and states and nonprofits um, are having trouble making ends meet themselves. And so they're looking around thinking, oh, maybe I have to lay some people off, which is exactly the last thing you want right. on top of everything else. Uh, so that, that's why I feel so strongly about trying to have a unified government, because if you do have Mitch McConnell saying no, no, no to everything, um, then it's going to be hard to, to do some of the big things that we should be doing right now. Um, even if we had a unified functional government, this would not be a good time. This would still be a very, very difficult time. Right. Um, but we are taking a terrible time and making it more terrible through inaction and dysfunction. It breaks my heart. It makes me angry. It makes me sad. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a person, I'm, I'm a problem solver. So it's like, okay, here are the problems. Like, what can I do? <laughs> right. So like, I right. keep, I keep trying to jam myself into a useful position. So, uh, you know, right now the useful position is Georgia. <laughs> we can, and I will say the these special elections are going to be difficult races for for Dems. Like traditionally, Dems have not uh, performed as well in special elections in Georgia. Why is that? I think a lot of it's that Democratic voters just don't need to vote in January, <laughs> like a very high level. Uh, and, and I think conservatives are somehow more keyed in in Georgia. At least this has been the huh. pattern. Like there was one race and this was a little while ago and Stacey Abrams has changed things in Georgia and the demographics have changed. But there was a race that was like, that was like 3% in the um, in the first election. And then when it went to special, the, the Republican won by 15 points. <laughs> so, so, that, so that's an example that's of like- so interesting. Can you do mail-in ballot for a special election? Um, there, there are absentee ballots that you can apply for, I think literally starting this week. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so that, that allows folks to, to mail it in. So how, how will you be critical down there? Obviously your presence, your people are attracted to you. And so they'll listen to what you're saying. What do, what do you think is key about you showing up and other, other folks who have a national presence, a national demographic, uh, democratic presence, um, being, being present there at this time? Um, so I think I, I can add value by trying to activate some folks to uh, vote and pay attention that might not have otherwise. Yeah. Um, for example, some young voters, uh, Asian Americans are about 5% of the population in Georgia. Um, so if I can activate them, great. Mm -hmm. um, if my even just knocking on a door myself and posting it on social media, like help someone see like, wait a minute, like what, why is Andrew in Georgia? <laughs> like what's going on? Right. Uh, that I, I can um, get more resources to this campaign because this is going to be essentially a mini national campaign where they're going to be hundreds of millions spent on both sides. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's wild. I mean, who, yeah. who, like what's the last time you've seen a race that 
that this much relies on or these two races, but it, it you know, that, like it's, and yeah. one of the Republican members is one is literally the richest senator, which is saying something because there are a lot of rich rich senators in, in the Senate. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. but, um, but Kelly Loeffler is worth over five hundred million dollars, and she's already spent twenty three million um, of her own money on this campaign. So, hmm. <laughs> so so that there, there's going to be a lot of money spent. Um, yeah. So so I, I think having human beings um, knocking on doors and canvassing and whatnot uh, could be a difference maker. Yeah, interesting. We we spent a lot of time at the foundation also thinking about COVID-19 and the need for testing and um, the need for kind of a, a comprehensive set of protocols around getting kids back to school, which also helps get people back to work. How, how much of this solution, in addition to, you know, bringing funding to people who need it, how much of the solution is really to knock out this disease? We've been fighting about whether or not we need to knock out COVID-19. It feels to me like that should have been the enemy that we had the eye on, that that was where our eye was back in March and April. And instead we decided to fight amongst ourselves about whether or not that was important. How important do you think, you know, now or post-January it's going to be to just get everyone's eye on the ball in terms of, you know, eradicating that disease so that we can kind of move the economy forward? I you, I'm sure you saw the news come out today that there's a vaccine in late stage trials that may be very, very promising. Yeah. Um, so that there, there are essentially two stages of this in my mind, uh, well, three you could say, but we passed stage one essentially immediately. Um, so, so stage one would have been actually contact tracing and trying to keep um, infection rates under control by, by finding the, um, the outbreaks. Um, so we missed that window, uh, thanks to ineptitude in, in our uh, government uh, response. So that was very sad. So then we yeah. moved into community mitigation, which is where we've essentially been ever since. Um, so that's mask wearing and uh, social distancing and various precautions and PPE. Um, resources for schools make sense, uh, obviously, like ha having uh, people have masks and shields and, and various things that um, mm. could help you operate in that setting. Um, and then stage three would be actually having a vaccine and distributing it. Um, so right now, now that we're in stage two, people are making really difficult trade-offs uh, where using schools as an example, I'm a parent, I've got two kids who are in online school. Mm -hmm. It's not great. And I feel very deeply, just as I know you do, Jill, yeah. um, that the Kids who needed school most, uh, you know, are the ones who are just falling behind now because uh, we can't get them into school. Uh, yeah. And there's a real, real cost to that. Like, you know, like, the, like that trade-off is very, really painful. To me, um, helping very important institutions like schools operate safely would be um, the main priority during this time. Uh, and then trying to get to stage three where you actually have a vaccine in hand and can distribute it effectively um, is the hope. And it seems like that light may be actually appearing at the end of the tunnel sometime next year. Yeah. And then, so do you think then there's this parallel path where we're both providing funding to help our most vulnerable population while the economy rebuilds and jobs come back? I mean, part of what we're seeing in Chelsea is um, that, you know, there are so many people who would be working right now who have lost their jobs because they work for restaurants or for hotels or for the airlines. Um, and they're just out of work and they're going to be out of work until we live in a safer environment because yep. those things aren't going to open. Right. And, but, you know, it's kind of black and white for a lot of those folks is they either can work every day and afford food and shelter and their basic human needs, or they can't. 
and 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 then they're a bit flailing and many of them don't um qualify for federal supports and so you know this is a massive struggle and it's a massive struggle that's happening across america and so you know at some point we will 100% get the disease under control but then do you think the economy comes back swiftly or slowly and do you think part of that is just or you know depends on how seriously we focus on things like universal basic in income and other supports that are not so structured and really give people the freedom to kind of make investments where they need to for their own health and well-being. We should have adopted universal basic income early on in this pandemic and kept all these families afloat because of what you just yeah. described. Like it, yeah. if you are a bartender, uh, security guard, uh, restaurant worker, airline attendant, uh, retail worker in a mall that has prematurely shut down and everything else, like right. you were in the situation you described where it's like, look, if I could work uh, full weeks that I could survive. And yeah, now 100% I they would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that one of the misconceptions is that uh, somehow the economy would turn back on like a light switch. I mean, that's just not the way it works at all. Right. Um, even with the vaccine, it will not actually turn on like a light switch because people's habits have changed and their, um, their, their commutes and patterns have changed. Uh, and not everyone's going to adopt the vaccine. You know, I mean, right. you, you can look around like it's not like 100 percent of Americans are wearing masks. So you, you think that if you can you have a vaccine, like 100 percent of people will right. sign up for it. Right. Um, th there was actually a, a great suggestion on Freakonomics the other day that I'm going to try and um, popularize, which is that um, we should have like vaccine lotteries where like everyone who gets a vaccine in any given day, like there'll be a prize. Like one of you gets, you know, $100,000 for getting a vaccine today. <laughs> right, sort right, of yeah. like, like reward people. For, for, That'd be for interesting. It's not, it's not a bad idea because we are, it is going to be a whole series of um, things that get us back, back and past where we, where we were in a positive way. And, and you know, and the other thing is that we, um, people need to, to understand what the new pathway is right because like you said it doesn't we don't look the way we did before this crisis no. you know we we did we were we're looking at the um we're measuring lots of things around this ubi project that we have in chelsea and one of the things we looked at was mental health and you know it, in chelsea 30 percent of the respondents suffer from mental health issues we had them take kind of a, a test that looks at mental health that's as compared to five percent nationally so you just look at what the impact has been on people's well-being. And so there's a whole other thing alongside of the economy and academically that we need to nurture and bring back to just to where it was and where it was wasn't even terrific. And so the country has a ton of healing to do. And do you think that's the key responsibility that President-elect Biden will take on as, as he moves us to and through the next four years? Uh, this is one of the things that I find very frustrating, Jill, uh, is, that, is that a lot of our politics has devolved into messaging where, yeah. like, where, where when the media talks about someone being a healing figure, it's essentially for that person to um, present a calming, uh, unifying demeanor and avoiding a particular rhetoric. Um, but if you have 30% of people in a town, like a uh, mental illness, I mean, sure, it's better not to have someone on the news, like braying about nonsense. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. like they'll help at the margin. 
Um, <laughs> but but that but but that doesn't uh, that doesn't somehow fix the the traumatized kid who has not been in school for a year. That does not That's fix right. the traumatized parent who who's um, you know been been struggling. Uh, and uh, one reason I'm so passionate about universal basic income is, is that if you were to lift the existential dread that that parent has. Uh, uh, you know, then maybe both that child and that parent actually do recover, um, you know, right. marginally or faster or whatnot. Um, but in the media, the conversation is just like uh, around um, the media itself, you know, where it's like the, 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 big, the big problem we have is that people aren't measuring the reality on the ground um, of uh, the lived the lived experience of families day to day. That's right. Where, where where we've been slipping backwards in various measures of social progress or well being, including mental health. Uh, this was all pre COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so things like infant mortality or uh, freedom from substance abuse and addiction or whatnot. We're something around twenty eighth globally if you take a composite of these things. Clean water, right. um, and, and and I'm sure COVID has made it much much worse. Uh, and that, to me, has to be the test for Joe and the new government. That's one reason why the challenge is so great. Um, and especially, again, if you don't have a unified government, it's like, how do you reach those people in Chelsea, Mass, right. if you're in D.C. and you're trying to get them help? Um, yeah. And uh, the obvious answer is like, we should be sending them money because then they'd have a much better chance of um, plugging back into something productive, uh, being able to pay their bills, that money would flow back through the, the, the community and the economy. That's right. uh, and and this, this has been um, you know, my mission for the last number of years. Uh, we made incredible progress, but I still see how much progress there is to be made before uh, that family in Chelsea actually gets the money. And thank, thank God for uh, your organization uh, you know, and your commitment, because now maybe that, that family in Chelsea is getting money, but then there are like the thousand other Chelsea's in the United States um, right. where there is not a Shah Family Foundation. <laughs> and, and no, that, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I was talking to Chris Hughes about this, who is a huge proponent of, of UBI, as you know. And I mean, he, I said, you know, what's the point at this now, right? Because it, it, all of these things push back that you get around U, UBI, it's those things have been proven to be untrue, right? Like people do spend the money responsibly. It, it does have an impact on their lives. Um, and his point of view is that we just need to keep doing this and keep supporting these programs as they roll out in cities um, to create momentum around it, right? So that, like you said, now 55% of people know what UBI is, it's because of you. And, and I think, and so not in sound bites, but in real stories, we need to share, you know, how impactful this is for our neighbors, right? And 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 how this really does shift the dynamics of, of the country, how it's good for all of us. Yeah, if we can get it to a point where someone actually knows someone who, who's- <laughs> Yeah, who's getting it, right. Right, yeah. that's right, that's right. Because right now so many Americans um, have had their uh, gaze sort of brought down or depressed. It's like, if you go to them and say, hey, you know, you should be living there, you should be getting money maybe from the government or for, uh, or just for living or whatnot. Um, it's it's literally too good to be true for them. Like like they can't even get their eyes up to a point where they see that as a possibility. Right. Uh, and and that's that's our challenge in many ways. You know, when I was running, I ran into that challenge a lot. Um, one of the things I'm going to try and incept for you because like you no, know, you and I are going to be fighting this fight for a while. But this helped me, and maybe this will help listeners. Yeah. Uh, 
that it was a neuroscientist in Seattle who said to me, the enemy of universal basic income is the human mind. And I was like, oh, what do you mean by that? Um, yeah. And he said, well, our, well, as humans, we're programmed for resource scarcity. Uh, it's kind of evolutionary, right. <laughs> evolutionarily like baked into us. And we're right. raised that way. Uh, and so if someone says, hey, uh, everyone should get this money, then everyone has this knee-jerk scarcity reaction um, where right. you think like, oh, uh, that's impossible, where you get that money, there's not enough to go around. And then it goes to, won't that hurt people? Won't that cause all these problems? Right. Won't they spend it in bad ways? Like, like that, that, that's kind of almost like a, um, like a knee-jerk reflexive reaction based on our wiring um, as right. a species that we felt like there's never enough to go around. It's only in relatively recent times that you could argue, you know, we're in a situation of abundance rather than scarcity. Right. Um, so this neuroscientist's observation kind of helped me understand the objections um, a little bit better because it's, you just have to try and bring someone from uh, a resource scarcity mindset to uh, an abundance mindset very, very hard, um, yeah. but it becomes easier if they actually see it. If they see right. it, they're like, no, oh, it is possible. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's a, per I could talk to you for, for a, a really long time. It's really interesting to have this opportunity to chat with you. But I think, I think that's a great place to end our conversation is, is that we really do need to shift away from net zero thinking, that we're in uh, a time where net positive opportunity is absolutely true. You are an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. We both know that you can take a dollar and make a hundred or a thousand or a million dollars from it with the right investments. And, and that's the way we need to be looking at this moving forward. So, yes, yeah, so that's the abundance mindset, the entrepreneurship yes. mindset. Love yes. it so much. Yeah, well, and you know, I think it's where Americans like to be too. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, spending time of with you. Of course, anyone who, who does the work like you do, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of, please consider me a friend and ally and resource. Uh, there aren't enough of us, but there, there are more of us uh, coming into being every day because people are realizing uh, that this is not just possible, but necessary. I think that's right. Well, thank you. Thank you for heading to Georgia. We'll be watching you and cheering for you and, um, and looking forward to see what you head into the new year doing. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Andrew Yang. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.